Inhale the good shit. Exhale the bullshit. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my shit shows. How the hell are you doing? To any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and I am a fucking shit show. And yes, we say fuck around here. So you've been warned. What else should you know? Have I shared that I wash my feet twice every night? I feel like I probably have. (laughs) another fun fact about me. So I've been doing it probably for like, I don't know, 14 years at this point. Uh, It started with during the summertime wearing flip-flops all day and then having some nasty feet at the end of the day and, you know, washing my feet. And then for some reason, one day I just did it when I had been wearing socks all day. So my feet weren't dirty, but just had to do it, kept doing it. And then one day, I just, um, I did it a second time and I've been doing it ever since. I guess it's, I don't know if you consider it OCD. I don't really think so. I feel like in order for it to be considered OCD, it would have to be conflicting with like getting in the way of, of my life. And it's definitely not doing that. So the way that it goes, I'll just give you my whole routine. Cause I know you're just <laughs> dying to know. So I, I do like my first getting ready for bed rounds. So that's like washing my face, taking out my contacts, first foot wash. And then when it's time to like get into bed and like actually go to bed, then foot wash too happens. I have extremely long legs, so it's very easy for me to just (laughs) lift my legs up and just put them in the sink. And yeah, now you know. So for anybody out there that has like a foot fetish, um... I'm your gal. Or I don't know. Do people have like dirty, (laughs) dirty foot finishes? I'm going to move it along so people aren't puking in their car. So today we are diving deep into breath work with Regina Lawrence. So she is a breath work and sound practitioner. I got connected with her through Tiffany and you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. So it's got a little bit of everything. We're going to go into her story first uh, she's one of nine kids, so that's quite a interesting experience. And then she's going to share her career journey of bottoming out in law and then finding her purpose. And then we're going to talk about breath work and what the hell it is and the benefits of it and all that shit. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. She shares some tangible tools at the end and a couple of different tech breath work techniques. And I've, I've tried the first one that she mentions. Um, I did it last night and then I also did it this morning as well and definitely felt, um, felt a lot lighter, I guess you could say, calmer, lighter, freer. Um, and on that note, I want to do a little update. So last week on the pod, I shared about my gaming my candy crushing and self-sabotage and procrastination and about how I am really trying to approach all of this from a non-shaming perspective, which I feel like I've been doing and how I've really been trying to shift my perspective, self-talk, 
to compassion and curiosity and really being open to what is this? What is this about? What still needs to be healed? So I've had some things come to the surface that I want to share with you. What I've been doing before I sit down to work on something. Oh, also, let's just note it is it's 540 right now, guys. This We're getting earlier. We're getting earlier every week that I'm doing this. So that's also good. It's not 10 o'clock and I'm not going to re-record this at 10 o'clock tonight. And also, no, the games are not still deleted from my phone. I'm not going to bullshit y'all <laughs> say that they've been deleted since then. But I will tell you that the amount of time I've spent playing them has gone down significantly. But so this is what I've been doing before I sit down to do something um, where I experience kind of those feelings of resistance before I'm sitting down to do any sort of work, honestly, anything that kind of contributes to my success often that's where I'm kind of met with this resistance and these feelings of fear and these desires to to check out and just play games on my phone. So the first thing that I've been doing is that I've been saying this fear prayer that I found, which I'll share with you now, but you could say, dear universe or higher power or whatever the hell you want to say, dear God, I come before you to lay my panic and anxiety at your feet. When I'm crushed by my fears and worries, remind me of your power and your grace. Fill me with your peace as I trust in you and you alone. So I have been saying that prayer a few times over and over and over and over. And then after when I get to a place where I'm feeling a little bit more grounded and calm, I've been setting my timer for five minutes and then just breathing. And just asking for whatever needs to come up or whatever needs to be released so that I can sit down and do this activity without experiencing resistance. And I can tell you, doing this simple practice has made a whole hell of a difference in getting shit done. So some revelations, ahas that have come up for me, things that have come to the surface. The biggest thing being forgiveness. So I am doing this group coaching thing with Brenda uh, Johnson, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. So it's this money mindset group coaching thing. And so the thing that she's having us work on now is a forgiveness list. So she wanted us to write down 25 people we need to forgive, situations that we need to forgive. And what really came up for me are not other people or situations, but myself things that I need to forgive myself for that I don't think that I really have realized how much I'm holding on to. And I think that my gaming, my self-sabotage type stuff, I'm thinking that it's almost in a way to punish myself for these things that I'm not forgiving myself for. What was really significant for me that came up today during my workout was So a few weeks ago, we had our episode on forgiveness, and I was reading from Tony A's book called The Laundry List from his, um, the, the chapter on forgiveness. And so there's this one part in there where he's talking about how we often think that forgiveness is this two part step of awareness and then forgiveness. So having this awareness that our parents aren't bad people, that our parents are sick people just like us. And so then we have this awareness and then we forgive them. But that we're missing a crucial step and that in order for us to 
to find true forgiveness, we have to express and experience and get out all the feelings, the anger, the hurt, the sadness, the rage, the feelings of abandonment. And I think what I've realized with myself is that I've I've done that as it relates to forgiving myself, that I think I've gone from just awareness to forgiveness, that I have this, this awareness that the mistakes that I've made, the ways in which I've hurt myself, that I've had this awareness that like, no, Andrea, you're not a bad person. You did these things because you are an adult child of a dysfunctional family, because you suffered from the disease of alcoholism yourself, because you suffer from complex PTSD, and then just going straight to forgiveness for myself, but that I haven't let out the the feelings, the rage, the anger, the sadness that I have. And I'm thinking that these repressed feelings are expressing themselves through the self-sabotage type behavior. The other thing that is coming up for me is repetition compulsion. So I was thinking about my work history and I haven't had a single job where it hasn't ended with me self-sabotaging in a way. From babysitting to working in as a lifeguard as a kid to the jobs that I've had in adulthood, this is a pattern for me. This is the way it's always ended. And I totally understand that I, I clearly see how the self, I, I self-sabotaged myself into living in my purpose, right? Like I know that um, it all happened to get me to exactly where I'm supposed to be and that it was very much aligned with my soul mission and my soul purpose. However, I need to write a new ending or not write a new ending, but, you know, write a different story right? Write a different story that doesn't end with me essentially just like giving the middle finger to everybody. And that's been my pattern. And I think that there's probably a part of me that is scared that I'm going to do that or just knows that I've done that in the past. So that's also the other piece that's come up for me. So it's good. Like those are two pretty big things that have come up for me just sitting with it and showing myself a little compassion and curiosity just in, you know, about two weeks. So hopefully that's evidence to y'all to to do the same. So I'm just going to continue to continue to share my, my insights and my growth and my healing in this arena. And I'm not going to self sabotage myself out of this podcast because I think I would have a lot of really pissed off people (laughs) if that that were the case. So um, I don't think anyone's going to let me do that. But most importantly, I don't want to do that because I deserve better. I deserve better. And the other thing I've been doing is mirror talk. So looking in the mirror and telling myself, looking directly into my eyes and saying, You are so capable and you have been granted this special mission, you know, that your higher power brought you into this lifetime for you to fulfill a very special mission. And you would not have been granted this mission unless you had everything within you to make that possible. Those The times in the past where you've self-sabotaged, that's not who you are. I believe in you. You're capable of anything that you put your mind to. 
please release any of this self-doubt. That is not who you are. That's an old story. So that's the other thing that I've been doing is is the mirror talk and the self-talk. And with that, let's get the show on the road. But first, let's take care of some business. How about you damn the join Patreon? <laughs> you guys, I've been doing it in the group. Nobody fucking does it, does it back. I'm going to keep doing it, guys. I'm going to keep doing it. So the Patreon uh, is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups. It is with people that have truly become my chosen family. We laugh. We cry. It's truly an amazing group. I am in the process of I'm going to be switching off of Patreon and moving it onto a different platform and adding more meetings and all these doing these different things. And so it won't be damn the join Patreon. I think it's just going to be like damn the join shit show. But I think that we're not attached to like the Patreon part, right? Like we're attached to the to the damn the join part. So as long as we can keep the damn the join, I think we're good, right? Damn the join shit show. But how about you damn the join Patreon now? Patreon.com slash adult child. Do it now. You're missing out. I'm telling you, you're missing out. Next, you need to follow me on the Insta, on the TikTok, at adult child pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. This is required if you don't do it. In a month from starting to listen to the podcast, the podcast will just, it's just going to disappear from your phone. Okay? You know what? That's happened. So how about you go? Give me five-star rating now. Thank you. Love you. Bye. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, y'all. Well, we are joined by a true Philly girl and like a fake one. I like, well, what, I don't know. What is your thoughts on this? It, if I say I'm from Philly and then you find out that I'm from Bryn Mawr, do you feel like, no, you're not from Philly? Be honest. You're from the suburbs. You're not from Philadelphia. Okay. So how should I say that? I'm from the Philadelphia suburbs. I, I, li- I like when people say they're from the Philadelphia area. Okay, the Philadelphia area. Yeah, because like I went to college with a girl, <laughs> Siobhan, who used to say she was from Philly. That was like her her reputation at school. And then I met her. I'm like, where in Philly? Oh my God, where in Philly are you from? And she was from Philadelphia suburb. And I was like, you're a fraud. <laughs> okay, okay. It's good to know. She's like, yeah, I'm from Gladwin. <laughs> yeah, and that's like she was from somewhere like that. And I was like, really? You're not. So, so I always say, but when you meet people that you don't really know, it's just easier to say I'm from Philadelphia because people don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I figured like I was within like 30 minutes. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's why Philly area is fair. Okay. Philly, <laughs> Philly area. Um, okay. So our real Philly gal, South Philly, Italian, former lawyer, sound and breath practitioner, Regina Lawrence. Hi. Hi. Are you ready for this? I'm ready for this. One of nine. Youngest girl of nine. I have a little brother that's two years younger than me. Did you know many other families that had nine kids? 
not until I was homeschooled. When I was homeschooled, it was like really conservative Catholic families. There, we we had a smaller family. Really, there was a family with fourteen kids. Fourteen. 14 children. Yeah. And the bigger the families got, the weirder. It was just like a very, I remember being from like a big crazy family and seeing these families of 14 and 15. And I was like, Jesus, that's a weird, they're weird mom. Like their family is very strange. It's like a business. Literally. Well, and like the moms in those families were intentionally like wanting to have more and more babies. There was this one family, she had 15 kids and she wanted to keep having kids and she wanted to start businesses so the kids could all just work together, be together and like never leave the family unit. Yeah, (laughs) you know, I'm thinking about it like with like, like with like sister wives and stuff like that. I feel like Mm -hmm. it would like make more sense. It's like, okay, you can have that many kids, but like, let's have like a couple wives. Yeah. Like, you know, and like spread out the responsibilities. Exactly. Because when it's just one, even with us, one mom for nine children, like my dad wasn't really around and she was the only person to really take care of everything. Mm-hmm. And so ha- the, your oldest sibling, how many age years gap between the two of you? She's 20 years older than me. Wow. Mm-hmm. My mom got married at 17 and had her first baby a year later. Holy shit. Yeah. So was that sister more like a mom? She she raised me mm-hmm. because also when I was born, that oldest sister had a child already. Mm-hmm. So my niece is a year and a half older than me. That's so fucking weird. So weird. And and then that oldest sister, like really, I spent a lot of time at her house and she raised me for like portions of my childhood. Wow. So you have one niece or nephew. Do you have more than one niece or nephew that's older than you? Uh, just one, but I have a lot. I have 17 nieces and nephews. Are there any that were like this exact same age as you? No, no. Wouldn't Mm -hmm. that be so fucking weird if you're like in the same class with your niece? It would be so weird. Well, it was weird enough having a niece a grade above me. We would go out. We were in the same school. We'd go out and I'd be like, oh, like, this is my niece. She'd be like, this is my aunt. And kids were like, you two are liars. No way. Like kids. Did she call you her aunt? We just for just to not like it in real life, but to fuck around with people. She'd be like, Aunt Regina. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. <laughs> so weird. So your parents got divorced when you were what, 13? Yeah. So my dad left. Okay. So my parents are actually still technically married. Okay. But my dad left when he started to leave when I was 13. And he was like fully out of the house by the time I was, and like it was done by the time I was 15. So when you're one of nine, how did your mom, like, would you ever, ever, ever spend one-on-one time with her? So I spent a lot of one-on-one time with her. So the way that we're paired, Uh yeah, so it's like Lisa, Ralphie, Johnny, Jerry, there's a couple years, Mary, Mara, Anna, then there's seven years, and then there's me and Joey. Uh So... Joey and I actually got the most attention. Um, and we were also the, the two that were homeschooled. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of my mom's attention, probably more than the other ones, which led to a lot of resentment down the road from my siblings. Mm-hmm. That often happens. Yeah. So, and so your dad was just a workaholic. My dad worked nonstop. And he also, as we learned, was having an affair with people through their whole marriage. I don't know that he was ever not having an affair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when he left, was he gone, gone? 
when he left, he was still very present. But when there was a gap of time, so I never went to see him. He left when I was 14 and my brother would go see him on weekends and I cut him out until I was 17 years old and didn't speak to him, didn't acknowledge him, had nothing to do with him. Because of what you saw your mom going through. Yeah. Because of the heartbreak I saw her go through. Do you want to talk about that? Like what that pivotal shift that that had for you? Yeah. As far as seeing the impact that it had on her? Yeah. Like leading up to my parents separating, I lived under the idea that we had like a really perfect family. Mm. And it's interesting because that was also like leading up to my dad leaving my mom. Like I have, so I have seven siblings Seven of the nine have struggled with addiction of some sort, largely drugs and alcohol secondary. You said we we lost a sibling, right? Yep. One of my one of my older brothers uh, was a drug induced schizophrenic and died, became a homeless person and died during COVID during 2020. Um, And so my i i grew up seeing like my my sister above me 7 years older than me got sober was put into rehab at 17 and so leading up to that i saw her try to throw my mom down the stairs i saw there was a lot of things that happened so i was like this is just a no- we're just like a normal family like you know what you know you don't know any different exactly we're just a no- the cops would show- bring my brothers home and the cops would show up and like my brothers would be in jail and it just was like like, I remember being in school very young talking about this and being like, your siblings don't get arrested, you know, and then realizing like, oh, this I sh- I can't tell people about this. This is just like a thing that happens in my house. And so when my but even that even that like when my dad left, it was so shocking for mm-hmm. me that like this happened. Did you did you have an understanding that there were issues in their relationship prior to that? No. Willful blindness or you they just did a really good job of hiding it? They didn't fight. Mm-hmm. They just didn't communicate. Mm-hmm. And like it would build up. And there was literally in my house, it was never quiet. There was always chatter, but there was never talking about anything real. Well, I think one of the things you said in the episode that I listened to was that there was there really was no love between the two of them. No, there were periods where I think they would really try but I don't think they ever had this deep connection and love for one another. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of hard too when you have that many fucking kids. When is there ever time? And I and I don't think my dad ever wanted to have all of the kids. He just kind of, my dad's really good. Like a lot of men and people are putting things in boxes and just mm-hmm. compartmentalizing. And he compartmentalized like the kids and had a completely separate life from us to the point where like we wouldn't meet people in his life for years, colleagues and friends, you know? Um, What did he do? He was in sales. Uh So he would have to travel for work to other countries for periods of time. And he just worked a lot. And and my dad's like this charming, charismatic, even in his seventies now, he's just like this funny, charming salesman. Is he remarried? He's not remarried. But the woman he left my mom for, he's still with her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. And then did your mother ever get remarried? No, because she still considers herself married to my father. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. They're still, they never got officially divorced. Yeah. Um, And she's very Catholic. So they're still married. Do you think that he resented her for having so many kids? I'm sure there was levels of resentment about having so many children. Yeah, absolutely. 
so tell me when you learned that they were getting they were getting separated. So I learned that they were getting separated. It was well, I learned what was happening. It was the night before my thirteenth birthday. Mm. and I was, I'll never forget it. I was across the street at a neighbor's house and I literally saw my mom. My mom is deeply intuitive. She definitely has psychic abilities. She'll never admit it because of being so Catholic. But I just remember seeing the front door open, seeing her run across the lawn, get into her car and skirt, skirt away. Mm. And then she came home. I don't remember that night, but I remember it was the night for my 13th birthday the net that early that morning, I heard a knock on my bedroom door and I just ignored it and came later when I got up, I realized it was my dad coming to say goodbye to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I got up and my mom was sitting on the couch in the formal living room and she was like really sad. And she like called me and Joey, my little brother over and she just said, you know, I wanted you to know that daddy left us today. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? Where'd he go? What's happening? And she was like, he's, he's gone and he's, he's not, he's not going to live here anymore. He, he's going, he's going to be with someone else. And that's how she told us. And I remember like, just thinking like, that's no, that's not real. That's like that. That's not possible. And then from that moment forward, I watched my mom who is this like strong, vibrant Irish woman, just kind of like she she would say she cried so much those few years that she got wrinkles around her eyes because she cried mm-hmm. so much. So talk about what seeing her struggle, what that how that impacted you. The way that that impacted me was I remember seeing her struggle and I and I knew like she was so reliant on him for everything. She was a stay at home mom. She never had a career she took care of us and and raised us and she she had nothing she was completely dependent upon him mm-hmm. and so at that age i remember saying i'll never rely on a man to take care of me i will make sure that my life is sufficient so that i, I can take care of myself and i can take care of her if she needs me mm-hmm. and that moment that decision at such a young age literally shaped my education path, the men I chose, the relationships I was in for the next 25 years of my life. Mm -hmm. Do you think in a certain, in certain ways you kind of became like your dad? So I, I'm a lot like my dad, like so similar to my dad. Um, And I always favored my dad before this happened. And so I definitely in a lot of ways have become, became like him after that. Yeah. Especially from like the work ethic perspective. Totally. Mm -hmm. Well, I just became like, I really tapped into that deep masculine doer strategic energy to get shit done. Yeah. And also too, it's like, because you saw, you saw your mom was the one hurting, Mm -hmm. you know, and not your dad. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so there was like much more safety and becoming more like him than being like her. Totally. If you, because if you become like that, like you're never, I, I would never have to be hurt in my mind like she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what led you to uh, rekindling the relationship with your dad? I think I was, I was getting ready to go to college and uh, I just started to think about, did I really want to have the rest of my life with 
no dad, with my dad completely out of my life. And my mom said something to me. She said, you know, one of your greatest strengths is that you're so persistent and you're so stubborn and you get things done. She said, but you also have this ability to cut people out and to pretend they never existed. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's good for you to do that. And I started to think about that. And even now that is a struggle. That is something I always have to work on because I can cut someone out and pretend they never existed. And so, but my mom brought that awareness to me and I was like, I don't want to be, she's like, your dad, she said, your dad does that and can do that. And I was like, I don't want to be like that. Like he's, he can be so cold. And so that kind of started the process of me being open to him again. Interesting. Do you feel like she encouraged at all you cutting him out? No, No. it's good. Not at all. She really like other than ex, she expressed her heartache and her sadness and told too many details of things that were really happening to me at such a young age. But she never like, she never discouraged a relationship with him or like, you know, did anything like that. Yeah, well, that's the emotional parentification, right? Like you absolutely that as emotional confidence and support. I I went through that with my dad too, as it, it was my mom's drinking. It's like crazy too because my brother that lives in LA, we were actually talking about it more recently, and he said it was Gene. It was my family calls me Gene. He's like Gene. It was so weird to go home in the middle of that because I was watching this dynamic between you and mommy, and you were the mom. And she was the kid and you were running the household at 15 years old. And like, that's just what it was. And it was, you know, sometimes when you think about your childhood and you think like, was it as bad? Were those moments as bad as I thought they were? Like, did I make that up? Like you kind of like, as you go through this work, you, you go back and you take inventory. So to hear my older brother say that, I was like, that's how I, and I said to him in the moment, that's how I felt. Um, he's like, no, that isn't just how you felt. That was the reality of the life that you lived in high school. You were a mother to our mother. Well, I think though that sometimes that that can be used against us is when we look back at our childhood and we go, oh, it, it wasn't as bad as I thought, like, as I felt it was, but it doesn't matter if like with our, let's say, even if he didn't validate your experience, right? it doesn't matter, like with our adult perception and brain, looking back on it, thinking like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Well, it doesn't matter because like, that's how we perceived it at the time as kids. Exactly. You know, we didn't have the ability to be thinking about it with an adult brain to be like, oh, it's not that bad. Exactly. I agree. It's so interesting that you kind of stepped into that parent role, considering that you were like the second youngest of nine. But since there was such that large age gap, you stepped into that oldest child role. We always say like in our family, there's three families and I am the the oldest child of the third family. Uh And so I very much, I very much show up as an oldest and my little brother very much shows up at the, as the youngest. How do you think that all impacted him? Oh, it's uh, <laughs> in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Like ev- every part of it had such a, it was such a hard impact on my little brother, mm-hmm. you know, like for me, 
my response was to be the doer and the fixer and the codependent helper and the perfect daughter who got great grades and like never wanted to like stir the pot. And then him, nobody, he was always like pretty hyper as a kid. So everybody was always telling, telling him to like shut up and be quiet and don't talk so much. And like, then his dad leaves and he has me as an older sister and everybody's comparing him to me. And then my mom sent him to boarding school. Where did he go? Was it like a school for bad kids? No, but, no. but he was sent to a school in Flint, Michigan. Okay. <laughs> great. They have great water there. Yeah. That's, it was in the midst of all that. She sent him to Flint, Michigan. And like, he was at a school with a bunch of monks and like the poor kid was just like shafted in so many ways. Where did your sister get sent to treatment when she was 17? She was sent to a place at the Jersey shore. Okay. Yes. I got sent away at 14 for the first time. Did you? Mm-hmm. She, uh, the place she was sent was called the Seabrook house in okay. at the Jersey shore. And then did, uh, she, did she get sober then? She did. Wow. Yeah. She got sober. How many she, siblings are in, are in recovery? Um, I would say like none of them are actually other than her. None of them mm-hmm. are actually in recovery. Mm-hmm. Because nobody thinks that they're actually an addict. Mm-hmm. My bro- One of my brothers has gone in and out of rehab. And like every time he gets to a certain point in his career and he's doing like super well, it's like, oh, so good. The sabotage happens. But like my my family like often doesn't think that they're – I said to my mom, I was like, I was thinking about going to Al-Anon. And I was like, I think I'm going to like start going to Al-Anon. And she was like – honey, why would you go to Al-Anon? Like, you're not married to an addict. And I said, mom, I grew up with seven of my nine siblings having substance abuse issues. She's like, not seven. She's like, so-and-so doesn't have a problem. I said, okay, let's take her out six then. (laughs) Sorry, sorry about the seven, six then. And she just was like in disbelief that I would want to go to Al-Anon. So it's one of those things. It's like, because everybody functions like, like on the surface we're very like middle class east coast hardworking. everybody has jobs everybody has homes everybody has families everybody's popping pills on christmas eve like it's just it'd be interesting so i've had a couple of episodes where i've had siblings on to just mm-hmm. talk about how they have such different experiences growing up in the same home you know yep. um it probably wouldn't be a good conversation except for with your one sister that's sober. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's even like we've talked about it because even like the top because of the age gaps between us, what was the energy of the house with the mm-hmm. first family? What was the energy of the house with the second family and the third family? What do you think it was like the first round? What was the energy in the home? The first round, they were dirt poor. Mm-hmm. And that is when my mom, that was in like the 1970s, early 80s. That's when my mom was a raging conservative Catholic, pro-life, protesting at abortion clinics, taking the kids with her everywhere. Um, it was the 70s. So all the kids went to a parent-run school. It was like very Catholic, hippy-dippy, were really poor. Um, Catholic hippy dippy. <laughs> yeah. It was like struggle. Like it was a lot of struggle. And my older brothers, there was three boys in that oldest family. And my brother who died a couple of years ago was part of that family. And mm-hmm. so that was like 
the wild, the, the really wild time. Then we get to the middle family. And also that's when my mom has her most energy. Her energy fades over time. (laughs) And like what happened. (laughs) Exactly. So, but like, you know, so they talk about my mom, like beating the shit out of them and like just Mm -hmm. being really like rambunctious. And, and then you get to the middle family and it's, we have more money. Um, Mom's not as mean. Mom's not as like crazy. Mom's still pretty conservative and Catholic. Um, Dad is even less present than before. Um, and and the middle family is three girls. Mm-hmm. So, and then you get to me and Joey. And my, I mean, my mom had me in her late 30s and she had Joey in her 40s. So it's four, three, and two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, then she gets to us and she's tired. And like, then, but then also she has me who like doesn't do anything bad. Like I don't get into trouble. I don't do drugs. I don't try to party. I don't have sex in my teenage years. Like. And so it's just a very different. And so I was allowed to do whatever I wanted because I wasn't doing anything bad Mm -hmm. in her eyes. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, Have you had any conversations like with your mom ever about like what that experience was like for you? Many. And is she receptive? She is. She is. I started talking to her about it because I started talking about my family pretty publicly. And I just said, like, I want you to understand, I want you to know that I, I'm not shitting on you. I also, I think that my mom did the best she could. Like, I understand the family that my father came from. And that's going to be my next question for you, but go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) My dad is from a family of addicts. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad is from a family, a lineage of men that have all cheated on their wives. Um, His dad left my grandma for five years and then she took him back and made his life a living hell until he died until she died first so that was the that was the environment that my mom that my dad grew up in and then my mom on the other side was my dad was one of six kids is one of six kids my mom is one of two kids Mm. um irish immigrant family and my mom grew up in the very like like pictures of my mom and her family from the 1950s, 1960s. It's like picture perfect, super beautiful, super thin. You can never be thin enough. You can never be pretty enough. You can never be perfect enough. And so like, we don't talk about things. We don't communicate about things. Like um, there was a lot of like silent abuse that happened in my mom's childhood. So like you have these two people that come together and have all of us. So my mom did the best truly she could do. And honestly, I think my dad my dad has too. I think all of our parents do for the most part. You know, that doesn't mean yeah. that was good enough, but no. You know. No. And so that's what I communicated to her. I said, I have no resentment. I'm not angry with you about my childhood. I know that it served a purpose in the work that I do now in this lifetime. That family and that childhood has served a great purpose. I said, but I have my own view of what that reality was for me. And I want to talk about it because I think other people need to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. And she's, and she's cool with that. She's okay with it. She's like, I don't ever really, I don't ever want to listen to or watch the things you say. And I said, and and I'm not asking you to, I just want you to know that, that this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. So 
but she's been receptive. We've had conversations about my childhood and my experience. I've talked to her about me mothering her. She's taken ownership of that and completely agrees with me that 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 was my childhood. Do you think that she's gotten over your dad leaving her? No. Yeah. No, she'll never get over that. Mm-hmm. She'll never... Um, She'll never do the work that's that she need that would be necessary for her mm-hmm. to get over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially at this point. And I don't think he's ever gotten over leaving her. Mm-hmm. From what perspective? He's starting to say now that he's like getting pretty old, older. That's a re- he regrets doing it. He has the deepest. He there will be my dad's like pretty sensitive and he can be pretty sensitive and emotional. And when he gets into those moments, he'll like cry and express like res- like sadness about his life decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the the woman that he chose, you know, their life together has not been great. And my mom is like, my mom is a really kind human, and he sees that because they still talk and communicate and like I was they have ask, all of us. Like, what is their relationship like? They can get along. They get along every That's Christmas, good. every Christmas since he's left, they're together on Christmas Eve with the family. Uh-huh. Um, he'll, if he comes in for Thanksgiving, they'll at some point be together at one of my sister's houses and how they, they'll connect with each other and talk and catch up. Um, and Will the wife always, come around? Will she, the, never. No, sorry, the girlfriend, never. Never. She's never been around. And there's been wedding, like sibling weddings and stuff. It's been very clear. She's never she's not invited really mm-hmm. interesting have you ever had a relationship with her or spent much time with her i've never been around her once really no. where do they live they're in texas okay what yeah, about your other siblings has anybody been around her some of my brothers have none of my sisters have ever been around her and she's you never guys expressed feel like you blame her like instead mm-hmm. of like Maybe. putting the fault on her kind of unfair I mean, a little bit i don't i don't feel like i've ever put blame on her but i there's no reason that i need to have a relationship with her you know um i have such a distant relationship with my dad um and i and i have great boundaries with him and he's never expressed a desire to bring her around mm-hmm. that's gotta feel shitty for yeah. her does she have kids they didn't have any kids together no, she has kids from okay. so when they got together, they were both married, married and had kids. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned the thing t- telling your mom you should go to Al Anon. Have you checked out any of the adult child stuff? I haven't done, I haven't gone to Al Anon or any of the adult child stuff. You should read the adult child book, it'll blow your mind. It's what? really next. I'll send it to you. Okay. But it's really like next level. I mean, Al-Anon's great and all, but like ace, adult child stuff is really the real core shit. Yeah. The the work that I've done has been with with a coach who I did a lot of like my codependency work with. Uh-huh. So let's talk about hitting your work bottom. Yeah. So I had been a litigator. What kind of law were you practicing? I first I was a federal trial attorney for the city of Philadelphia. That must have been interesting. It was really, it was such a cool job. Um, what was your most exciting case? I had so many exciting cases. I worked a lot. So my clients were the Philadelphia prison system, the Philadelphia police department and the warrant unit. 
Okay. And so most of my cases were cop cases where they were excessive force cases where a cop would be accused of assault and battery and we would investigate and then try the cases if we didn't believe the accusations. Mm -hmm. So all of those cases were like just really interesting. Um, One of the interesting cases I worked on was a police. I worked on police shooting cases. So um, police getting shot or police shooting police, police shooting and killing someone. Okay. Um, And arguing like the justification of it Mm -hmm. in federal court. Those cases were really those cases have given me an interesting perspective on because I did that work. And then right after I was doing that work, the climate of like police brutality um, really came out. Ramping up. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so it's given me an interesting perspective. I bet it has. Yeah. I also, because I did the prison cases, I would go into prisons, the pr- Philadelphia prison system and take depositions all the time. I would love, I would love that. And it was like, so I, I I would have interns from like the universities and we'd go into the prison system. My, my interns would be so scared. They're like, what's going to happen? Oh, I'm like, I'd be so jazzed. I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. We're going to be fine. It's okay. <laughs> Did you ever have anything scary happen? I never had anything scary happen. No. Like anytime I was taking depositions in the prison, I always had a plan. Like if something scary was to happen, what's my plan? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the prisoners I would interview and take depositions of were always so nice and respectful. What was like the most juiciest case? Uh, juiciest case. I think like any of the any of the police shooting cases are always the juice were always the juiciest cases. Like we had a case. Um, well, we also had like funny cases. You know the rapper Meek Mill. Yeah. Um, I sat in a deposition with Meek Mill for a day. Oh, interesting. He sued the city of Philadelphia, and like Meek Mill was in the office, and my boyfriend at the time was a Philly guy, and he was uh-huh. like, "I'm gonna sit in the front row of that trial, and I'm gonna yell, be free Meek.' I was like, <laughs> "You cannot. You're not coming to court." <laughs> so funny. I did that work and then I left the public sector and I went into a private firm and I did white collar fraud litigation work. Mm. Um, and while I was doing that, I was also a law professor at night for a couple of years. Are you, do you watch Real Housewives at all? Yeah. yeah. So what do you think about all this Jen Shaw shit? So good. It's so good. It's so interesting. She's garbage. What do you think about Erica Jane? Uh, she She knew everything. I agree. She's she's not innocent. She knows she knew everything. She's so fucking smart. That's the thing. If she had a different personality, I might think differently. She's fucking smart as a whip. Do you watch other reality TV? Like what? Do you ever watch Love After Lockup? No. <laughs> so fucking good. You would love it. I probably would. I love um I love a reality TV binge like my favorite thing to do is when I when I'm trying to like hide from my life and responsibilities is to turn off the lights, close the blinds, turn off my phone, and binge watch reality TV. Mm-hmm. It just makes me forget. So talk about hitting bottom and and just kind of your realization related to like it's never enough. Yeah, it's. I was literally just having this conversation yesterday about money and it never being enough. Um, I just, so I was in practice for, I was probably year five when I had the breakdown and I just had this realization. I had a breakdown on my office floor. And at this moment in my life, I am living with a partner who I had had for five years. 
I have the job that I had worked so hard to get. I was like doing all the things, doing all the right things, doing all the good girl things. And I was also having panic attacks all the time. Like that was really normal living on caffeine. Um, and I'm in my office and I just started to have a panic attack and I started sweating and started shaking. And I was like, I'm having a panic. It was just like nothing to me. Mm-hmm. And I remember I closed my office door and I laid on the floor of my office and I had just started sobbing. And I remember laying on the floor. I put my, I like outstretched my arms. I put a headspace meditation in because that guy's voice was like the only thing that could soothe me. And I remember thinking like, how did I get here? Like, what am I doing? And I heard a voice say like, your life doesn't have to be this hard, but you have Mm -hmm. to make changes. And I was like, well, I'm a lawyer. Like, what am I going to do? And I remember thinking like, you just have to fucking figure it out. And that was the moment where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But like, this is not, I am not spending the rest of my life in the four walls of this gray office having panic attacks, like Mm -hmm. something needs to change. So what was your journey that led you to doing what you're doing now? So from that moment on my office floor, it took me two years to leave practice. I very quickly jumped into like self-development kind of stuff. So I discovered like Tony Robbins and then I found a business and life coach that I started working with. And then I found Louise Hay and then I found Joe Dispenza and I started to find these people. And when I discovered Joe Dispenza and Louise Hay, it all of a sudden, I started to learn about the correlation between our trauma and our stress and Mm -hmm. the physiological harm that it does Mm -hmm. because I had spent a lifetime with stomach issues, with digestion issues, with food intolerances, um, hormonal issues. And I started to realize that my childhood of unprocessed trauma was wreaking havoc on my physical body. I also realized that the way I responded and more reacted to things was I could cho- I could start to reprogram the way I thought, thought by thought, and change who I am at the deepest level. Mm-hmm. So that's what started it. And then, um, and in the midst of this, I worked with a therapist. I worked with my business and life coach. Um, I just started hiring people and working with people. I started reading a lot. I started going to events. Was this one, like, up until this point, did you, did you was your perspective of your childhood was like, it wasn't that bad or like it was, you know, normal or when did you start to have the realization of like how much your childhood had impacted you? Uh, in that time frame, Mm -hmm. I knew that my childhood was, I never thought I had a normal childhood because nobody around me had a childhood like mine that I could witness. Um, but I just didn't realize I knew that my childhood wasn't normal, I didn't realize that like all the physical stuff going on in my body was like rooted Mm -hmm. in like eating dinner and witnessing things and hearing Mm -hmm. conversations that were like unsettling, (laughs) not normal, you know, like (laughs) not normal, not appropriate. And it's funny. I had the boyfriend I had for seven years through this, this awakening. Um, We were at, we were having Christmas breakfast one morning. My dad was there. My dad was saying something. My dad's like a wacky dude who like, has always been obsessed with like food and calories and nutrition and reading nutrition labels and just like very neurotic about Mm -hmm. things. And Mm -hmm. he was being neurotic about something at Christmas breakfast. And my boyfriend leans over and goes, Oh my God, I understand why you are the way you are. 
And I was like, what do you mean? I'm nothing like him. He goes, oh, honey, you don't even know. He was like, you don't even <laughs> That's know. That's when you broke up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, and so he started to like, later told me like, your dad was doing this. Like, do you think that like, you know, and I was like, oh my God. He And so he started to bring awareness around like my habits and patterns of behaviors that I like didn't even, I didn't think that they just how, were how I existed. What do you mean? That's like, that's not healthy, you know? How did and that so relationship end? That relationship ended because I was leaving the safety of practice and I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I was starting to go off in a different direction. And as I started to change, my partner at the time, like I remember one day I was like going on a trip to see my business coach and he was like sitting with me as I was packing and he was like, you wake up every single morning and you want to be a better person at this point in your life. And he was like, and I, it's exhausting. Mm. I don't, I don't feel like I need to change every day and be better and be better. He was like, nothing's ever good enough for you and you're never good enough for you. And it is exhausting to me. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I am trying, I'm working on myself and I, and I want to understand why I am the way I am and I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. And this is just the beginning of my evolution. And mm -hmm. so if you're uncomfortable with that, I don't think that we can do this anymore. And so we've, it took like six months of, cause we lived together, we had a house, we had ever pet, you know, it took six months of like uncoupling to like unravel and like end. And that's the last like long-term relationship I've had. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into the breath work stuff? So I moved to Arizona three years ago, three and a half years ago. One of the intentions that I set when I was moving here was like, I want to, and at this point, like I'm well into my spiritual awakening. What were you doing once you left your, when you finally left your law job? Yeah. So when I left my law job, I had been coaching. So I was coaching like highly successful women who are uh -huh. deeply stressed and anxious. Okay on how to start to implement habits and practices to start to change their habits and behaviors. Okay. Um, I was doing that. And then I also own a social media marketing agency. So I had launched that agency. I started, it was just me. I was running social for people, but that was the beginning of my agency. Okay. Um, so that's what I was coaching and that sort of coaching morphed into business coaching. So mm -hmm. Um, I've done a lot of like business coaching and strategy work for online entrepreneurs. So moved to Arizona, was very much in the midst of a spiritual awakening and set the intention. I want to meet women who are going to like be on this journey with me and guide mm -hmm. me and help me and like be sisters and mentors and friends. So beautiful intention. It, and it was like that, that clear intention yield has yielded the most powerful, beautiful friendships of my life. Um, moved to Arizona. Like, how do you make friends? Like when you move to a new place, I was like, I don't know. I'm just gonna start dating. Right. So I get on dating apps and I start dating. I meet this guy on a dating app. Um, we connect, we don't go out. We end up talking on the phone for a couple hours. Um, at the end of the conversation, I was like, you're amazing. Like, we're not in alignment. Like we're not meant for each other. 
So he was like, well, I own this coffee shop in Scottsdale. And if you ever want to use it for events or blah, 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 you're always welcome. Great. Thank you. He reaches out again. Actually, there's this group of spiritual female entrepreneurs that meet here in my space once a month. Um, So I end up going in, meeting him, having coffee with him. He connects me with the girl that founded this group. And I go a week later. And this group is where I met all of my first crew of best girlfriends in Arizona from a guy on Hinge. And uh, at this event, I met a shaman named Ksenia. And she has a space here. And we immediately, I saw her. She's like this stunningly beautiful Russian girl covered in tattoos. Like you just look at her and like, she's like, takes your breath away. So I meet this girl and I'm like, I don't know who you are. You're really beautiful. And your energy is amazing. Find out she's been 11 years sober, um, has this space and she does uh, shamanic breath work. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know what breath work is, but she ends up inviting me. And leading up to this, we had spent hours talking about addiction, recovery, like all the things. And also, when I moved to Arizona, my best friend who I was living with, uh, my gay best friend, Daddy, I moved to Arizona. And he, as soon as I moved here, I was living with him. He was like, hi, I love you. Thank you for moving here. I'm addicted to meth. And I have a problem. And <laughs> relapsed within my first few weeks in Arizona. And I had to put him in rehab. And deal with the depths of how did I end up in this situation? And, you know, it was a great lesson for me, right? So she invited me to shamanic breath work. And I did breath work with her the first time. And it was a big group. There was 33 of us. And doing breath work, so many parts of my life, my story, my journey made sense in that experience. And I was like, everyone has to do this. This is literally like my own breath and it's given me a perspective that and space to have a perspective that I didn't know was possible. Well, let's dive into that more. I've only done, I I went to one breathwork session once this summer and it was amazing. I don't know what kind it was, but why don't you just give us like a a 101 on breathwork as you think it would be most relevant for my listenership? So breath work is breathing, but it's modifying the way you breathe, whether you breathe in and out through the nose, the mouth, or both, and the speed at which you breathe. And it can have impacts on your physical body, on your stress and anxiety, on your health, and on, I like to say, your spiritual health. Mm -hmm. Um, It allows, a lot of times through our day, we're always in the conscious mind. It's like, squirrel brain running around, running around, running around. And so something happens in breath work where all of a sudden the conscious mind can take a back seat and the subconscious can come forward. Mm-hmm. What can happen is it's a beautiful space where you can get downloads of information. It helps me in my business. It's also a place where if there are unresolved trauma loops in your life, things, memories, things we maybe have suppressed can come forward to be dealt with. So depending on who the person is, what they're going through, where they're at, how often they do it, it can yield different results. And do you feel like it's most effective when it's practiced on a continuous basis? Yes. Yeah. So one of the styles of breath work that I do is, um, 
it's an intense breathwork experience where the first half is, I say, the intention is to release. So we're breathing really intensely in and out through the mouth. Mm -hmm. When you breathe in and out through the mouth, it spikes the nervous system, similar to like an intense workout is Mm -hmm. my best comparison. And that's the time where you can kind of like things will really come forward for you that need to come forward for you. And then the second half of breath work, we do, we bring the nervous system back down. We breathe in and out through the nose or in through the nose, out through the mouth and calm you down. Have you had any repressed memories come to the surface for you? I haven't had repressed memories come to the surface for me. I do think one of the things that's come forward for me, one of my beliefs is that we choose our families. We choose our we choose our families in this lifetime. We have soul contracts with people. Um, I don't think that this is my first lifetime mm-hmm. with my nine siblings, my eight siblings. Mm-hmm. We've done this, and I think a lot of our trauma is not just in this life. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's ancestral, mm-hmm. but I think it's also in our soul family. Mm-hmm. And so, very clearly, the first time I ever did breath work, it was like, oh we've done this before and the resentments run really, really, really deep. Mm. Um, And that gives me a greater level of empathy and compassion for the dynamics that we have as siblings. Cause it's not just Regina's the youngest sister and she's spoiled and got everything she wants and look at the life she gets to live. It's like, no, like we've done this before and there's lifetimes of resentments that have built up between all of us. Mm-hmm. How do you think breath work can help with like addressing faulty core beliefs? I think one of the biggest things that breath work can do is that it just gives you s- space. We're always trying in meditation to get to like the white space to think and process things. And for me, meditation is something that I've struggled with, like sitting down and breathing and like just witnessing my thoughts, but there's something about the rhythm of getting into the breath, clearing that space that you can actually, like, for me, I'm able to witness habits and patterns of behavior, thought process that processes that I have, not in judgment, but just to be like, oh, I think like that. Oh, that's not my fault. But I've been carrying that that that's my fault my whole life. Hmm. So when you first started practicing, was it like a particular style of breath work that you did initially? So the first style of breath work I learned is something you, it's called the pranayama two-part breath. And it's when you breathe twice in through the mouth, into the belly, into the chest and out, and you breathe really fast. So it sounds like this. Wait, sorry, into the twice fast into the mouth. And then what, how are we exhaling out of the mouth as well? All out of the mouth. Okay. So like, okay. And so that's the first style of breath that I learned how to do. Um, and so typically is it advised that you should be lying down, sitting, eyes closed, eyes open? Uh, whenever you're doing, especially so breath in and out of the mouth is going to spike the nervous system. And I always recommend you be laying down, eyes closed journey in a safe space. And do you recommend like, so let's say somebody wanted to use that practice. How long? I would say something that I recommend, especially if you're alone and you want to experiment with this, I would say you do a certain amount of breath. So I would say you maybe do 30 breaths 
in and out. So that'll be one. Yep. Like so two, two, one is one. Two, two, one is one. So I'd say maybe do like 30 breaths like that and then hold your breath for as long as you can. Yeah. And then let it go and then go back into maybe like two or three rounds of that by yourself. Okay. You can also, if you, if the two, two, one feels like too difficult, you can also go in and out through the breath rapidly. Like, so imagine pulling the breath deep into the belly, expanding the belly 360 degrees and out. And again, you could do 30 breaths, hold your breath, 30 breaths, hold your breath. Okay. And what about like preparatory work? Is it good to like set an intention or to like do anything before or after? Every time you do breath work, I think setting an intention is so important. So I like to set an intention. Why am I doing this? And and this type of breath, I always think of like, whether it's the first breath I showed you or the second pattern, it's a great way to release. And I like to say, whenever we release anything in our life and our body, we get to fill that space with whatever we want. Mm -hmm. So I like to think of if I'm, what am I letting go of in this experience? And what am I calling in to fill its place? Mm -hmm. The the first two are that you've mentioned. So those would be kind of where you're revving up the nervous system some, and then letting it relax. What about if somebody is in the midst of like an emotional flashback or they're in a triggered state? Like what are good breath work techniques to help with that if we're in a trauma response? If you're in a trauma response, the best thing is in and out through the nose. And I like to do it slow and controlled. So I'll go, you know, I'll count like in through the nose, two, three, four, out through the nose, two, three, four. And just the deep belly breathing, like really focusing on pulling the breath into the belly and sometimes even having a visual, like imagine the breath coming into your nose, pulling it down to your belly, letting it out and going in. It's like just a circular style in and out through the nose, slow and controlled, imagining the breath rise and fall is really good to kind of bring the nervous system down because when we get into like a heightened state, our first response is we want to hold our breath. We stop breathing often, right? Panic attacks, we stop breathing. If we can get hold of the breath in and out through the nose, it helps to bring the nervous system back down. Mm -hmm. What about time of day? Do you think that there's like a time where it's most effective? For um, a calming breath? For any type of breath work. I think breath work at different times of the day can serve a different purpose. So that more activating two styles of breath I showed you, I think they're great first thing in the morning or like through the day if you need to reset your energy or you're feeling tired, those are great. Um, The in and out through the nose, the slow controlled circular breath, if at any point during your day you're feeling stressed or anxious, as you're getting ready to go to bed at night, to have a routine where you lay down and you start to do that breathing will help calm you down. Also, a practice that I've gotten into just through my day-to-day life is I have become a strict nose breather. Mm. Um, <laughs> you put that on your dating profile. 
Yeah, I and Get I talk to people. Breathing. It's really important. The nose breathing is like so important because if breathing in and out of the nose helps calm the nervous system, if you're breathing in and out of your nose through your whole day, it helps keep the nervous system leveled. So if I'm sitting at this desk working, I'm consciously thinking like, is my mouth closed? I have friends who will tape, who are mouth tapers. And if they're working at their desk all day, they will, they will tape. <laughs> you should get it. We should get like a chip clip. Yep, exactly. Like, like they'll keep it closed. And so that makes like, you need some merch. You need to make some merch for that. Have you thought you do? I've, well, I've thought about like cute mouth tape because also like, um, I like to like tape my mouth shut when I go to sleep at night. Cause it really? helps. The- what so kind of you- tape do you use? They had, they actually sell their like little X's that you can, and it keeps it. So they're still, you can still move your lips a little bit, but it forces you to breathe through your nose. And or why you is that like- good for sleep? So what happens, well, it's not just that it's like good for the nervous system, but it also leads to deeper sleep and Mm. studies have shown that it leads to greater recovery in the Mm. body. So if you're working out, doing different things, um, they've done a lot of studies on athletes around it. So a lot of my friends, it's more my guy friends who are like biohackers and like really into stuff with the body. They all tape their mouth shut at night. And for a while I was resistant and I was like, guys, like, what am I going to bring somebody home and be like, excuse me, I have to like put, put my retainer in and then put on my mouth tape. And they're like, if you're not dating a guy that's taping his mouth shut, like, who are you dating? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's been my problem. I've never dated a mouth taper. Yeah. You got to date a mouth taper, but it leads to like greater relaxation and greater recovery in the body. It also, um, it's so interesting. I'm obsessed with I'm obsessed with nose breathing. And so um <laughs> there have been, nose breather. Yes. So there have been um lots of studies done. There have been tribes of people who are exclusive nose breathers. And so they'll have their babies that are born. And from the time the babies are little, they'll if the baby starts to breathe through their mouth, they close the lips. They close the lips. Really? But the, what the result has been in these tribes that do this is they have the strongest, tallest, healthiest warriors. And if you are a nose breather, you tend to have a smaller jaw and straighter teeth. Hmm. So since I've started, I've been nose breathing for like really focusing on nose breathing for two years. You can look at side-by-side pictures of my face before and my face now, and you can see that my jaw has narrowed in the oh, past. I'm sold. Years. It's I'm sold. Give me my now. I'm on the tape. It's amazing. There's this book by James Nestor called Breathe, and he. I think I've seen that before. Uh-huh. It's if anybody's ever interested in understanding the breath and the power of the breath, it is. And it's he's a journalist who like went on a journey to learn all of this, and so it's really well written and interesting. Breathe. Mm-hmm. Any other interesting breath facts you want to throw out? Um, no, those are my those were my big hot takes. The mat, I'm obsessed with nose breathing. I like like I want everyone to know how important it is. I think it's fascinating. I'm gonna give it a go. Um, and then you like their special like mouth tape. If you look on Amazon, you will find it. I'm going to right now. What I mouth what I call it mouth tape. Yeah, just look up mouth tape. Mouth tape for sleep. Hmm. What a, what other spiritual practices have you made part of your routine, or what that you couple with the with the with the mouth breathing? 
I have so many, I have so many spiritual, <laughs> spiritual practices. Um, I'm also a sound healer. So I'm a classically trained pianist. When people say classically trained, like what the fuck does that mean when people say that? It means like the way that I was trained was like in classical music. So like I would spend the beginning of all piano, like playing the scales, playing the chords, like, Mm -hmm. and I, I never got into like jazz piano or it was like deep classical music. What do other people say though? Like if you're not classically trained, what do people say? I don't know. I also think classically trained is like, there's people who are like just natural born musicians that just learn, they have an ear and they just can play and figure it out. Whereas I studied in like a very traditional way. I started to take piano lessons when I was a kid and the teacher was like 80 years old. Like she was so old, but for some reason I was like scared to death that she was like going to like kidnap me. (laughs) I don't know why, but I would sometimes my mom would go upstairs and I would make sure that she was sitting in the other room because I was so afraid that this, like this 80 year old piano teacher was going to kidnap me. So then I So so I'm imagining you maybe didn't like playing piano. I think I was just a disturbed child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it had less to do with the piano and more to do with what the fuck was going on with me psychologically. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, sorry, go ahead. I derailed you. Um, okay, so sound. I I love I love sound and the and the vibration of music and the impact it can have on the body and the nervous system. That's one of my practices. Uh I love I'm very into plant medicine. So I've had a lot of experiences with non-psychedelic and psychedelic plant medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I sit with this tobacco called hape every morning. It's a finely ground tobacco that you ingest through your nose. Interesting. And it like it you calms. like ing- like the this like the like the actual tobacco, or you burn it and, and inhale it. No, it's like this little. Do I have it right here? It's this little piece called a caripe, and you put a little bit in the tip and you blow it in your nose. And then you blow it in the other side of your nose. So what's it feel like? Uh, it kind of, at first it like burns. It Sometimes it burns a little bit mm-hmm. when it's entering, but like on the rest of your body, it's very grounding. Like if I'm like running around doing a million things, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm sitting down to do breath work for somebody. I'll sit with Hape and it just like brings me back down to earth and like gets me ready to go into whatever I'm doing next. That's fascinating. Mm. Hape. I never heard of that. Hape. It's my favorite. Where do you get it? Um, I have a source that I go through. It comes from South America, largely from Peru and Brazil. And so I have a source online that I order it through that I love. I just ordered my mouth tape. Oh, yay. (laughs) I wear a retainer too. It's going to be really cute. Yeah. Well, I haven't had one over in a while. Um, okay. So talk about all the things that you do and offer. Uh, all the things that I do and offer. So I'm a breathwork and sound healing practitioner. I do a lot of stuff in person, but I also have a virtual breathwork membership called breathe with Regina and it's online at breathewithregina.com. And I do two, virtual, often? two a month. Uh-huh. I do a Tuesday a month and a Thursday a month. Um, if people can't attend live, all of the classes are recorded and available podcast style later. I also have in there um, sound healing meditations I've done. And then I also create guided meditations for people to do and to drop into and listen to when they need them. 
Um, that's the big thing I do. I also own a social media marketing agency called All the Things Social. And so we do strictly organic. I have a team that helps me run the agency and we do organic social media marketing for small businesses. That's awesome. Yeah. And I will include all the things in the show notes. Amazing. So I love chatting. This I love being here. Thanks for having me. up today's episode as always i hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey as always i know you did and if you didn't damn the join patreon okay damn the join patreon thanks again to regina that was awesome please go check out the show notes for links to all of her shit all of it um she has some good blog posts too on her website so go check those out as well let me know what you guys thought about the episode. It is 6.15, guys. It is 6.15. I'm going to be done by 7. Hell fucking, yeah, party time. What am I going to do? Well, no, I have a, I have the um, the group coaching thing with, with Brenda at 7. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, I just heard today that my furniture is going to finally arrive sometimes next next week. It's been six weeks since they picked up my shit. I'm okay, though. I'm okay. So that'll be nice to finally get settled in. Um, what else? I don't have anything. I don't have anything for you guys. I've got some interviews that I'm excited. Oh, I'm going to have back on um, Suzanne Anderson from the Abandonment Recovery Workbook Lady. I fucking loved her. So I'm interviewing her again next week. So let me know. Do you have questions about abandonment? Because I know that none of you guys um, have dealt with any abandonment shit. So maybe like ask a friend if <laughs> they have something to say about abandonment. Um, okay. Love you guys. Uh, see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super awesome. Super excited. If you're out of here, it's going to be a good day. Okay. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.